This is an ABC podcast. We have been selling victims a false bill of goods. When you talk to victims of violence, so often they are turning to the criminal legal system not because it meets their justice needs, but because it is the only thing that we offer. One way to think about this is that these mechanisms that the platforms have put into place are incredibly insensitive to context of almost any kind. It's difficult for them because, I mean, to be blunt, their priority is generating value for their shareholders. So in other words, they are commercial products. Honestly, there's not a lot of incentive for the whole system to change. It's a common criticism. Social media platforms facilitate harassment and abuse. But they also claim to fight against it, detecting and removing problem users and their content, often employing automated decision-making systems in the process. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Dr Rosalie Collette is a criminologist from the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society at the Queensland University of Technology and one of Radio National's top five humanities residents for 2021. She's interested not only in the various approaches that tech companies take to try and mitigate harm, but also in what they might do differently in the future to keep people safe from abuse. Rosalie, thanks for joining us. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. In today's world, what do we actually mean by online harm? Online harm can surface in many different ways. This could range from fraudulent activity, the spread of myths or disinformation, or violent and extremist content. A great deal of what we hear about today and what my research interrogates is how platforms like Facebook, Twitter and dating apps like Tinder enable and facilitate interpersonal harms, And these can be between known and unknown people and may manifest as abusive messages, physical threats, the sharing of non-consensual intimate images and so on. People can also use platforms and technology more broadly to control their intimate partners or family members. Apps with geolocative features, for instance, can be used to locate others with great precision. You also don't have to look too far to find hateful communities online that are dedicated to the disparagement of women and other minority or marginalised populations. Is most online harm perpetrated by men against women? What does the research suggest? We unfortunately live in a society where violence against women is quite common, so it's unsurprising that we see this online too. Platform cultures are shaped by the people who use and create them. So a recent survey of Australian adults by Associate Professors Anastasia Powell and Nicola Henry found that men and women were actually just as likely to report experiencing digital harassment and abuse. However, women were more likely than men to report being sexually harassed. And this study also showed that perpetrators of digital harassment and abuse were twice as likely to be male than female. I think it's also really important to note here that people of colour and minority groups are targeted on the basis of their different identities. So for women of colour then, this means that abuse may not just be misogynistic, but it can also be incredibly racist. And online abuse, sometimes it's very obvious, but not always. It can be disguised to seem innocuous, can't it? 
That's right, Anthony. What has really struck me from my research is how so many of the things that make women feel unsafe online may not actually be understood as abusive by victim survivors and platforms, and they certainly may not amount to crimes. In my research, I've investigated women's experiences that make them feel uneasy, uncomfortable or unsafe on the dating app Tinder. So some of the women I interviewed for this research reported to have been sexually or physically assaulted by men they had met through the app. But more often, these women described what they considered to be more ordinary abuse, which included receiving repeated unsolicited messages, phone calls and intimate images. But, you know, we really need to pay attention to all types of abuse because the attitudes that underpin physical violence also underpin these more everyday harms online. And if we let ordinary abuse go unchecked, it continues to contribute to a culture that supports violence against women and other marginalised populations. Now, as part of your residency with Radio National, you've prepared a package on this very issue. So let's have a listen to that. All feminists are ugly and deserve to be killed. There you go again, you loser. What a waste of oxygen. You're fake. You're stuck up. Good luck finding someone better than me. You look sexy, but you have the mind of a child. Just another time-wasting bitch on Tinder. I think the first reason it's difficult for the platforms to tackle harm is that they were not designed for it. Tarleton Gillespie, Senior Principal Researcher with Microsoft Research and Affiliated Faculty at Cornell University. There was an optimism and a naivete that were designed into these platforms from the start that made it difficult to anticipate the scale of the problem. The second is that the money doesn't come from solving these harms. The money comes from keeping people on the platforms as long as possible, being engaged as possible, which means that you're seeing advertisements and you're sharing data, and that's very valuable to these platforms. There's a long-term goal of people not running away from these platforms if they're toxic and harmful, but it's a hard one to balance with the short-term goal of bringing in users and data. And then the third is that we shouldn't pretend these are easy things to do. So what you or I might think of as extremism, what you or I might think of as encouraging terrorism, what you or I might think of as pornographic is going to differ. It's going to differ by person, by culture, by language, moment to moment. And so this is trying to imagine a very broad brush intervention for millions and millions and millions of people on exactly the kinds of things we don't always agree on and are exactly the kind of bleeding edge questions about what's acceptable in society, what's acceptable between two people, between strangers, between friends, in communities and groups. Which is not to say that the tech companies aren't feeling pressure to act on online abuse, But the measures they've chosen to apply have often been questionable and sometimes contentious. Social media platforms, as they've come under so much criticism, both from users who are frustrated, from activists, from journalists and from regulators, we've focused a lot on the fact that platforms have the power to remove and suspend and ban. So remove content send users packing and deplatform them entirely. And increasingly, the platforms have been engaging in a whole set of other techniques. I've been thinking of them as reduction techniques because they take different forms, but they're all premised on the idea that in addition to the things that the platform might remove or the users they might kick off, they do identify 
other content that they feel is nearly a violation, but not quite a violation. And what they can do is they can say, well, we just want these particular kind of problematic content to circulate less. So we're going to recommend it less. It's still there. You can still find it directly if you have a link or if you go to the users page, but it's just not going to show up as often or at all in recommendation. So these can be very consequential decisions. And as criticism of content moderation has grown, there have been calls for the process of moderation to be more transparent, both making the rules transparent, but also being clear when things have been removed and why, and that there's an appeals process. This reduction technique that kind of limits how things circulate doesn't have any of that yet. Some platforms aren't even really acknowledging that they're doing it. Others are saying it, but not making a big deal out of it. One way we could think about it is to say, you know, the kind of harms that we're worried about, maybe this is like the most mature step they've taken so far, right? Where they're acknowledging that their own systems may be exacerbating some of these harms and they have to do something about it. The other way to look at it is this is an even more opaque and unaccountable kind of fiddling with how things distribute in a way that is much harder to hold them to task and to scrutinize as an intervention. Because platforms are constantly playing this game of whack-a-mole with harmful content, does this mean that content moderation does little to address the underlying reasons for why people harm others online? It certainly does. As we debate the role of social media, we don't want to forget that these are antisocial behaviors or troubling behaviors or troubling categories of speech that existed before Facebook, before social media, before the internet. And that if we expected our commercial intermediaries to solve hate, we're probably going to be disappointed. So this becomes a focal point because we see it here quite dramatically, because it's at a scale that we are unprepared for as a society, because it's in our homes and in our phones and it's places where our kids and our loved ones interact. So it often becomes kind of a convening point to worry about these things when in fact the problems are deeper, the problems are fundamental to social and political life. That said, while we should recognize that social harms exist beyond platforms, platforms have nominated themselves to be crucial, central, and profitable intermediaries for social and public life. And that comes with some responsibilities to at least be responsive to what your users and what the public calls out for, to recognize that you have a hand in facilitating hate, making possible opportunities for harassment, and you have some responsibility to design a system that is aspiring to incentivize and encourage the best forms of that and to protect not just users, but to protect the public that they expect to be a part of. So I think it's, how do we ask both questions? How do we recognize that the harms are deeper and more profound than social media, but that social media doesn't get to say, sorry, that's just people, that they have positioned themselves in that space. And that comes with a, a set of responsibilities. It's complicated. Increasingly, experts are even questioning whether the traditional punitive approach adopted by tech companies actually reduces harmful behaviour. Because what's really important, says Associate Professor Amy Hazanov, is tackling the underlying structural causes that lead people to harm others. 
I think there's a lot of research showing that punishment is typically not effective in terms of any kind of measure we would really want to pay attention to. So it doesn't really work well as a deterrent. It doesn't really rehabilitate people who've done harm and maybe need to change their views. It doesn't really create any change in a community. So if the community has norms that are facilitating the harm, so let's say there's a community in which sexist comments is normal, if we just punish a couple people who are making those comments, it's not going to change anything about that community and its norms. And I think people tend to perceive punishment as sort of arbitrary and unfair and just sort of react negatively to being punished. And then I think the biggest thing that punishment doesn't do is it doesn't help anyone who's experienced harm in any real way. For some people who've experienced some kind of harm, they do feel that if the person who caused it is punished, then that's some sort of justice for them and they, they can find some value in it. But that's a pretty minimal and superficial way to respond to people who have been abused or harassed online and who could use a lot more different forms of support and different forms of healing and different approaches to what they've experienced rather than just sort of punishing one or more people who might have caused that. We talk so much about what the rules are, who falls on the wrong side of them, whether it's right to impose them, who should impose them. And the other thing that platforms do is they enact consequences. We don't talk about that nearly as much. When we do, we tend to talk about it in terms of speech issues, or at least, sorry, in the United States, we talk about it in speech issues, especially, right? So removal of content is a silencing of voice, and we frame it in terms of expression. But oftentimes, the more consequential punishment is not just that a post went down, but that someone was removed from a platform for a couple of days or for a month or forever. And that's a platform that they counted on, not just to say things, but for income, for community, for access, for their business. And so, you know, as these platforms have become even more embedded, not just widely, but deeply in people's practices, the implications of, of a punitive approach that says you violated the rules three times, your account goes down. This may be a very efficient punitive approach. If you imagine that the process they go to needs to lean on this is all kind of data, right? Like how do you quickly identify violations? The ability to simply cut off someone's account is a very doable task, much harder to engage in mediation, much harder to invite someone back in a community on new terms. That is like deeply social difficult, time-consuming kind of work. So platforms, not surprisingly, suggest that there's little way for them to do that. And the cosmetic gesture is explanation for why things went down, right? Invitations to return. But those are pretty meager approaches. So it's not surprising that the tool they have is to drop your content and exclude you or to manage how your stuff travels. And whether that is a this is just how the game works, or that is punitive in a particular way, that seems to be largely what we've been dealing with. The punitive approach used by platforms to moderate online behaviour is drawn from the same punishment model found in most criminal legal systems. That might make sense on the surface of it, but according to Amy Hazanov, it's highly problematic. You know, in the criminal legal system, you have 
a basic setup where the goal seems to be that we're generally trying to like figure out what laws were broken and who broke those laws and then how that person should be punished. If you sort of look at the parallel of how large platforms do content moderation, they're asking very similar questions about content. So they're asking like, what content was reported? Is that content against our rules? And then what should we do with that content? Should we remove it? Should we demote it? Should we flag it? Or should we just ignore it? And so then the answer is usually just, we're going to take this piece of content off of the platform by maybe like removing it or, or decreasing its visibility in some way, but there's similar problems in both systems in terms of just removing content versus removing individual people from society is that it never gets at the underlying problems and it doesn't really improve communities at all. So they, they really do, in my view, have the same limitations. And I think the other thing that content moderation doesn't do that criminal legal systems actually do is that content moderation, because it's a, based on private companies have created these systems, there is no sort of efforts at democracy in the system. So in most criminal legal systems, we have juries, right? You can be tried by a jury of your peers. We have lower courts. So if you don't like the decision of a court, you can appeal to a higher court. The laws are made by elected officials technically, who create these laws and, and pass them, and then they can be overturned by other bodies. So there's all of this negotiation between the local communities, the state or province and the nation in which a criminal legal system exists. So all of that actually makes those systems better. There's so many problems, but despite all those problems, there's at least this sense that people who are part of the system participate in it and they have ways to appeal decisions. There's some transparency. There's some democratic form of governance here. With content moderation, we have all of the same problems, but absolutely no way for an individual to really meaningfully even appeal a decision. Amy Hazanov from the University of Colorado, Denver. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. And I'm Dr. Rosalie Gallette from the Queensland University of Technology, one of RN's top five humanities residents for 2021. Our topic today is understanding online abuse, attempting to get beyond the simple rhetoric of crime and punishment to re-envision platform governance. For law professor Lee Goodmark, who heads the Gender Violence Clinic at the University of Maryland, there's also been a failure to adequately address the needs of those who've been preyed upon. We have been selling victims a false bill of goods. When you talk to victims of violence, so often they are turning to the criminal legal system not because it meets their justice needs, but because it is the only thing that we offer. And there is a fear in turning away from the criminal legal system because currently we don't have anything else to offer people. But I think that first, if you share the research that shows that criminalization is not stopping this violence, and then you share the vision of what could be and how we could try a number of other things to try to address the correlates of violence in a much more proactive way, you might have greater buy-in. 
as someone who's represented victims for the last 25 years, I would never say to a victim of violence, you shouldn't want that punishment because that punishment is really all we offer. But what I would say is, I'm not sure that's keeping you safe. Let's think about what really will. And then on a policy level, try to create policies that keep people safe. And that means rethinking the very basis of our justice approach, both on and offline. Transformative justice refers to a way of addressing violence without turning to the harmful power of the state, bringing justice into community. And restorative justice is one practice in a panoply of practices that are part of transformative justice. Restorative justice is both theory and practice. It asks three questions. What was the harm? What was the impact of that harm? And what needs to be done to address it? And it brings together the person who was harmed and the person who did the harm and their community to try to answer those questions in a way that can keep the person who was harmed safe and hold the person who did harm accountable without turning to shame-based or destructive systems of punishment to do that work. And how do these efforts work on multiple levels, redressing individual harmful acts and perhaps the social conditions and systems that foster violence? On the individual level, you have people communicating about their experiences in ways they haven't done before. You have people being held directly accountable by the person who they harmed, sitting with them and telling them, this is what you did to me and this was the impact of it. That doesn't necessarily address some of the larger structural issues that need to be addressed to really get at intimate partner violence. So restorative justice, for example, doesn't change fundamentally the economic system that leads to significant amounts of stress for lower income people. But what it could do is get people energized around the idea that we need to handle these structural issues differently if we have a real chance of changing those conditions. Have these alternative approaches been tried anywhere and is there evidence that they work in practice? There are little pockets of efforts being tried everywhere. Some of the best evidence is coming actually out of New Zealand and Australia, for example, around uh, restorative justice and intimate partner violence. But there's a lot that has to change. And I don't pretend that this is the kind of thing that can be implemented overnight. And in some ways, it's the problem of trying to fix a bicycle and ride a bicycle at the same time. There are such fundamental societal changes that have to happen to get us to a place where we can feel safe without criminalization that I couldn't make the statement now, yes, it's all being done. But in terms of thinking about, for example, who our first responders are to violence, there are violence interruption programs across the United States doing that work. There are people doing public health prevention work. There are people doing restorative justice work. There are people thinking about how we address economic harm. There's not a place that's doing all of these things systematically. If there were, I think we would have better results to report. So given the similarities between how social media platforms and criminal legal systems deal with harm, could technology companies draw on transformative or restorative justice principles? Amy Hazanov believes it's worth a try, but a major challenge will be doing it at scale. 
I think, you know, what often comes up is people sort of wonder about communities and like, what is an online community? Because Twitter, right, is so big, for example. I don't think we can call Twitter the entire, you know, millions of Twitter users all together a single community. But of course, if you, based on the many decades of research on online communities, that's really helpful. I think we can see that like there are, of course, lots of different ways that people are in community with one another online and that we're not all anonymous to each other all the time. We're not all total strangers. We develop relationships and connections and investments in various communities that are no longer bound exactly by geography, but are still communities nonetheless. Of course, like restorative justice sort of has some implications. It implies that there is a community to which a person can be held accountable to, to take that accountability in relation to a community. And I think certainly people ask, well, what's the community online? And the answer is it depends. There's different sizes of communities. There's different types of communities. There's people on Twitter who talk to each other in sort of subgroups that are not formally defined, but still, you know, there's many researchers who've tried to define and sort of delineate even informal communities. Unlike Reddit, for example, we have subreddits, right? And those are more clearly like defined smaller communities. But I think there's a lot of different ways to think about how we might apply restorative and transformative justice. And I think it's going to have to involve working with existing communities and existing moderators and existing platforms and trying to help them create systems that work for them that are different than the way we've done it before. And while the big tech players are still a long way from adopting and implementing a transformative or restorative justice approach, Amy Hazanov says some community-driven online spaces are already experimenting. What I am aware of is some research that some of my colleagues have done that tries to figure out what online moderators are doing in communities, especially smaller communities like a smaller subreddit that might reflect some of the principles of restorative and transformative justice without necessarily like using that terminology or necessarily having done a training in restorative justice. But they might do small things that are very much in line with those principles. They might try to explicitly support a person who's been harmed when something happens in their community. And so they may not call that restorative justice, but that's just their approach to community moderation. Or even more commonly is communities that have really active and thorough community guidelines that moderators and community members participate and like are involved in like an ongoing dialogue about like what are the norms of this community. And so then when new people come in and if they violate those norms, then both the moderators and the members of the community can say, oh, check out these community guidelines. We don't speak to each other in this way. We use this set of norms to speak to each other. And so that sort of that onboarding process is very similar actually to how some schools like elementary or high schools will use restorative justice by having these like shared sort of community contracts, community guidelines that they really try to integrate new members into and that that's really a big part of taking sort of a holistic approach to what are the norms of this community? What do we expect of each other? What do we do if somebody harms somebody else? How do we respond to that? All of those sort of things up front could be very like reflective of a certain type of restorative justice approach, even if that community isn't, you know, using those terms or or necessarily has specific training in restorative justice. What 
role transformative and restorative justice will play in helping to deal with online harm in the future is an open question. There's little to suggest that simply continuing with the current punishment-focused approach can ever be effective. But when considering alternative approaches, says Lee Goodmark, we should never lose focus of the underlying reasons why people harm others, both online and off. Unless and until we address the bigger issue of the feeling of entitlement to use violence in any form, whether that's verbal abuse or emotional abuse or physical abuse, and the ways in which that's hardwired into certain segments of the population, particularly around the association of violence and masculinity, we won't be able to stop this problem. We won't stop it in online spaces and we won't stop it in our communities. And so there is this deeper work about changing norms around the acceptability of violence that has to be done for us to eradicate violence in any of these spaces. Professor Lee Goodmark from the University of Maryland. Ending that report from Dr. Rosalie Gallette, one of Radio National's top five humanities residents for 2021. We also heard today from Tarleton Gillespie of Microsoft Research and Associate Professor Amy Hazanoff from the University of Colorado, Denver. Well, that's Future Tense for another week and indeed the year. Next week, we go into recess until late January, but that does give us the opportunity to replay some of our most popular shows from 2021. So, on behalf of my colleague and co-producer, Karen Savanovitz, enjoy the holiday season and take care. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.